of John, chapter number one, chapter number one. Now, this sermon is kind of unusual today because I wrote it myself. You, <laughs> you know, GoodSermon.com was down this weekend because of the, the severe weather out there, and so you had to be satisfied with this one. But I want to talk to you today about what is the meaning of the day. What is the meaning of this day? It's only a few times in a lifetime that you'll have Sunday and Christmas on the same day. From what I can tell, it's about every seven years or about every 11 years. It kind of fluctuates depending on the number of days in the year. But these two days, Christmas Day and Sunday, are the two days that have reshaped the world. Now, they're often separated, but today on this special day... We get to have both of these wonderful days together. Both Sunday, when we celebrate the weekly observance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Christmas Day, the day when we observe the birth of Christ, which is significant because it is the appearance in flesh of the God-man, of the divine one, the Word made flesh. It's in John chapter 1, verse number 14 that we read these words, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus emerged from His mother's womb, it was a remarkable day in human history because for the first time ever, there was a person on the earth who was very God and very man. This Logos, this eternal spirit, had now become flesh. Now, I want you to take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and listen to the reading there from the Apostle Paul. He, he blows our mind with information. Colossians chapter number 1. If I can find it, I'll read it to you. Colossians 1. Listen to the reading from verses 15 to 19. He's talking about Christ here. He says that He, Jesus, Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might ha- that He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a man in flesh who was very God and very man. He was not less God because He was man. And he wasn't less man because he was God. He was fully man and fully God on the earth. This never happened before and never will happen again until the Son of God returns from heaven and sets his foot upon the earth and establishes a millennial kingdom. But this birth of Christ on that first Christmas was a remarkable day. It's a day that has reshaped and recalibrated The world, this birth of Christ, was attended by the supernatural because angels came from heaven and they proclaimed the good news to the shepherds. 
They proclaimed it to the shepherds on that particular night, probably because they're the only ones awake. Because it seemed like just a regular night. Just a regular, normal, maybe Thursday night. Just a regular night. They're out there watching their sheep, keeping watch over it, sitting around the fire, chit-chatting, talking, wishing they had coffee. Right? I don't think they had coffee at that time in history. And then, boom! The, 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 the clouds, the, the starry night is filled with an angelic host singing and shouting and saying that someone magnificent has been born. That there is a king who has been born in the city of David. And they are so stirred by this that they go and they see him. The angels, they pronounce the birth and the mission of Christ. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse number 11, it says this, A Savior, this is my own free translation, A Savior who is anointed, the kurios, is born in this city. These are big words in the original language. Because it means that this one who is born is kurios. Kurios is Lord. That's the same thing that they called Julius not Julius, but Augustus Caesar. They refer to the Caesars as Lord and Savior. And so here in this little place in Bethlehem, this little humble cottage, in this little village, is born someone who is equal to Caesar himself. Now, if somebody said they were equal to Caesar himself in the Roman world, you're done. But there in that place is born this magnificent one, this God in flesh. Now this birth was attended by the supernatural. The angels came. And then there was a a special superstar that appeared in the heavens that caused stargazers from foreign lands to travel. And two years after his birth arrived these, these men who have seen his star in the east and they have come to worship him. And then when Jesus was probably 60 days old or so, his mother and dad, his earthly father Joseph, took him to the temple for the dedication. And this pair of people, Simeon and Anna, two old codgers who had drugged themselves to the temple to worship once again, they see the Christ child and the Holy Spirit moves upon them and they declare, this is the one. This is the Messiah. Now, these people had seen a lot of kids in their life. If you're here and you've seen a lot of babies be born, say amen. I've seen a lot of babies. I've seen a lot of of magnificent-looking babies. And I've seen some that were just babies. (laughs) And these two people, they see this child, but something tells them this kid ain't like the rest. And they declare, this is he. This is the special one. What a blessing it must have been to Mary's heart. In all her difficulties, in all her shame of living under the the constant rumor that she had been playing the whore and had gotten pregnant. What a blessing it must have been to her. What a comfort to her troubled heart. To see, yes, this is not a part of my imagination. This is real. Sometimes as a Christian, I find that some of the elements of Christianity seem to me to be unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
But there are these confirmations that come. And then for 30 years, Jesus, he lives in obscurity as the peculiar older brother of Mary's children. But then one day, I wonder how it happened. One day, like a lightning bolt out of the blue, Jesus rises from his carpenter's bench in Nazareth and makes a journey of 90 miles. He goes to where John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he makes this trip. And John sees him. And John chapter 1, 28 and 29, John declares, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And John says, I need you to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, suffer it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus Christ goes into the water and he's baptized by John the Baptist. Now in that baptismal act, there is a significant picture there. Because when Jesus was baptized by John, John was telling people, be baptized and in a figure have your sins washed away. This is John's message. Be baptized, then in a figure, have your sins washed away. Why is Jesus the Christ going down to the river to be baptized by John? What sins does he possess that need to be washed away? Well, if he's the God-man, if he's God in flesh, he has no sins to be washed away. But why is John, why is he baptized by John? G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary on Mark, he says, Jesus Christ was baptized to identify with you, to identify with sinners. Because Jesus is going to spend the, the next 36 months living as you and I live, being tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, being tempted by Satan himself. Christ is identifying with sinners. Christ knows what it's like to be a man. Christ knows what it's like to be faced with the temptations that you're faced with. He was baptized, but when he rose from the water, a voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Bible says that like, the, like a dove descended on him, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And from that day forward, Jesus goes forth, blowing everybody's mind. He goes forth doing miracles. And all these miracles are God-level miracles. The miracles that Jesus does are not parlor tricks. They're not not the things that little kids do to impress their parents or to impress their friends. What Jesus does are bona fide miracles. Things that defy description. In John chapter 2, he goes to a wedding and they run out of wine And he turns the water into wine. There's a few weird things about that miracle. Number one is he asked them to take these jars of water that were used for cleansing. These were the the jars of water that the Jews would use to wash their hands in. So the wash basin of the party. Jesus says, take these and fill them with water. And they go and do it. And then Jesus says, draw from these jars and take unto the chief of the feast. And they do, and the chief of the feast is struck. This is the best wine we've had today. Usually, they give the good wine at the beginning. And then once we're all 
well drunk. There's no other way to think about this. Once we're all well soused, then they bring out the cheap stuff. I've always wondered about that. My friend uh, Larry from uh, Springdale, Arkansas, pastor down there, he said when he was in Vietnam, they could usually they could lay hands on one case of Budweiser and then a whole bunch of Asian beer that wasn't that great. He said once we would drink the once we drink the Budweiser, we wouldn't we weren't tasting anything anymore, and then they would bring out the cheap stuff. This is what this is what happens. And it trips the people out because instead of doing it that way, Christ brings it at the end. The wine that Christ makes is the better wine, the superior wine, and they're struck by it. If you have an authorized version, the punctuation there is fascinating because it's a winky, smiley face. When it says they didn't, those who drew out knew something that the chief of the feast did not know. Like a little joke. It's funny. It's right there in the text. This is the kind of thing that Christ does. He comes doing miracles that have no, no explanation other than they're miraculous. And then in John chapter 3, a religious man comes to Jesus. And Jesus tells him something magnificent. Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know you're from God. Nobody could do or say what you do except he be from God. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. And Jesus describes the new birth. And Nicodemus is, is, is taken aback by this. How can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born again a second time? And Jesus says, do you not understand what I'm saying to you? You must be born again. And those great words in John three thirty eight: as the wind bloweth, we do not know where it comes from or where it goes, but we see the effect of it. So is everyone who is born again of the Spirit. My friends, that means that you could be sitting right here in this house of worship as far away from God as the man in the moon is from us. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, the wind of the Holy Spirit come upon you and give you new life and new sight. That's how it happened to me when I was 15 years old, sitting on the front pew of Calvary Baptist Church, as lost as... My dad would say it like this, as lost as Adam's house cat. Because cats don't go to heaven. <laughs> and bam, I had worked, I had built up my spiritual crust. I, my crust against Christianity and preaching was so thick and so hard that it didn't matter what kind of sappy story any preacher said. It didn't matter how much my mother would cry or anybody else's mother would cry. It didn't, it didn't matter to me. But on that particular Sunday, like a lightning bolt from heaven, the Holy Spirit cracked through my hardened heart and pierced me into my innermost being and showed me that I was a sinner and that I needed Christ. And this can happen to you in a house of worship like this. This could happen to you tomorrow. While you're sitting there at the house, rummaging through the cabinets, trying to find a plate to put some leftovers on. It could happen to you while you're at work later this week or while you're fishing. It could happen to you in the midst of committing a sin. God can strike through. Everyone who is born again, it'll come upon you unexpectedly. It'll surprise you. It'll set you back. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes... This is striking, the striking reading 
It says in John chapter 4 that Jesus was coming near to Jacob's well and that he was wearied in his journey. Think of this, the creator who made all things, the one who keeps all things together, the Bible says he was weary, he was tired in his journey, and he sits down by the well and sends the disciples into the city to get provisions. And there in a time when nobody usually would show up at the well comes a woman. A woman who is immoral. A woman who is filled with such shame that she avoids she avoids getting around other women. She's ashamed of the way she's been living. And she comes to that well. And Jesus says, give me a drink of water. And she says, how can you ask me that? How can you ask me? And Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for a drink. And Jesus goes on to describe her sinfulness to her. And in describing his sinfulness to her, he doesn't condemn her or cast her aside. No, because Jesus Christ came into the world to be the friend of sinners. He came into the world to, be, to become the friend of those who are ashamed of their sinfulness. Those who are weary in their sinfulness. He called to her and said, I will give you the living water. And she receives it from Christ. And she's born again. And the disciples come back and they say, why are you so happy, Jesus? And he says, because I have eaten something that you don't understand. He, he was living on the thrill, living on the joy of seeing a sinner come to faith in him. The second part of John chapter 4, I told Lacey I was going to preach all the way through the book of John today. But I'm not going to. I'm only going to go to chapter 6, all right? In John chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, Somebody comes to Jesus and says, hey, my kid is sick. And Jesus says, go home. Your kid's going to be just fine. The next day the guy gets home. That's how long their journey is. A day's journey to get home. And he finds out his kid got better the day before. And he says, what time was it? And they say, the time. And he says, that's exactly the moment I spoke to Jesus. So here is Jesus doing miracles from a distance. Then in John chapter 5, Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda where there are people who are, who are sick and who are injured laying around this pool. And they're waiting for something that may or may not have happened. The traditional understanding is there are by the pool of Bethesda all these crippled people because at certain times an angel would come down from heaven and stir the waters and the first one who could jump in the water would be healed. You only find that in the authorized version nowadays. But that's why all these people are there. They're there for this maybe miracle that happens. Some people say it did happen every few years. Some people say it never happened ever. Either way, that's why the people are gathered there. And Jesus comes to a guy who has been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. And he asks him, he says, do you want to be made whole? He says, how can I? When the angel comes and troubles the water, there's nobody here to help me get in the water to get healed. And Jesus says, I don't need no stinking angel to stir the waters. I am here and I can heal you. I can make you whole and well. And that's what Jesus does. He says, take up your bed and walk. And the man takes up his bed and walks. And he does it on the Sabbath day, which ticks off all the religious people. Because that's kind of what happens sometimes. 
is Jesus doesn't work the way we think he should work all the time. And he does things his own way because he is God. And then in the last part of John chapter 5, Jesus is arguing with the religious people. And he tells them, I have all authority, even the authority to judge people. I have authority even over the resurrection. John 5, 24 is my father's life's verse. He that heareth my words and believeth in them has passed from death unto life. Through believing the mere message of Christ, you can be delivered from death unto life. Then in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Feeds the 5,000. And then he walks on water. And then he preaches a message where he says to those following him, if you want to live, if you want to have everlasting life, you must eat my body and drink my blood. And this frustrates everybody. Because they say, this is a strange thing that you're saying to us, Jesus. We don't really, it just seems too far out. And in John chapter 6, verse 66 of all verses, it says, from that day forward, many walked no longer with him because what Christ was saying was there is no other way into heaven except through him. I'm the only way. And my friends, I want all of you to know that too. There are not many paths to heaven. There's only one path to heaven. There are not many doors to heaven. There's only one door to heaven. There's not many saviors. There's only one savior. There's not many ways to appropriate salvation for your sinful soul. There's only one way for you to appropriate salvation. And that's through faith in Christ. By calling upon Him, Jesus, save me. And if you don't do that, if you don't come to that certain moment in your life where you realize you have no righteousness of your own, and if you do not call upon Christ to save you, you are going to die in your sins and get exactly what you deserve. Because that's how it works. You don't want to believe in Christ? God says, okay, pay for your sins yourself, and you will. But to all those who come to him, all that the Father gives to me comes to me, and them that come to me I will never cast out. Those who call upon Christ, those who feast spiritually upon him by calling upon him will be saved for all eternity. And so it goes to the Gospel of John. Miracle after miracle. Manifestation of the divine after manifestation of the divine. God made flesh and declaring to us the message of salvation. I'm going to take off my coat because I'm getting hot. And I'm going to, I got, this is an eight-page sermon. I got four more pages. But they're small pages. But was this necessary? Was it necessary for Jesus to come into the world? Was it necessary? Over half the Bible, 900 odd chapters of Scripture take place and there ain't no Jesus on the earth. There is no God-man on the earth. All the Old Testament, no Christ, no incarnation. Was it necessary? God made a world without there being a God-man. God delivered Israel from Egypt without a God-man. David killed Goliath, but David was no God-man. 
Why did God become flesh? Well, the answer is so that, now listen to me carefully. The answer is so that God became flesh so that God could die for your sins. God became flesh so that God could die for your sins. When we read the Bible, it's obvious that Jesus was God in the flesh. And that he was truly God and truly man. That he possessed the divine attributes. And that he came into the world to save sinners. And what it took for your salvation to be possible, what it required was that a God-man, a holy, divine God-man, that that man die as the representative sin-bearer for all who would believe. It took the death of God the Son to make your salvation possible. It took the blood of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that you could be forgiven. Now, sometimes we don't think about it in those terms, but I'm going to try to prove it to you if I can. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse number 28. Listen to the reading here. It's quite striking. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. <clears throat> the apostle Paul is telling the, the pastors of the churches at Ephesus how they should conduct their ministry. And here's what he says. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. His own blood? Whose blood? God's blood. The only blood that God ever had Whoever will have is the blood that flowed through the veins of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and he shed that blood for your sins. So that your sins could be paid for. Listen to the reading again from Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. Colossians 1, 19. In him that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, for which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, it's through the blood of Christ, the divine blood of the God-man, that we can be reconciled to God. It doesn't matter if your sins are sins in the mind only, or if they were deeds, or both, which they always are both. Christ has come to save sinners. Which brings us to Sunday and Christmas. Now what is a Sunday all about for a Christian? A Sunday is the day we celebrate every week, every seven days, every 168 hours, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We don't celebrate the incarnation every week. Aren't you glad about that? I am. Because it's kind of a pain in the neck. I don't like this candlelight business. It's hard to see my notes. <laughs> there, there's a lot of pressure around this time of year, isn't there? There's a lot of things going on. But every single Sunday, God has made it so that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the significance in that is this. It wasn't the birth of Christ that saved your wretched soul. It wasn't the birth of Christ that redeemed you. It's the resurrection of Christ that saved your soul. It's the resurrection that saved you. And you need to be reminded of that at least every seven days. God has set it up that way. So that every Sunday you can come and hear that your sins that you've committed during the week. And you've been committing them, haven't you? Are forgiven. They're under the blood of Christ. You say, well, shouldn't I be sinning less? Yes. But you're never going to sin none. But every Sunday, you can come here and be reminded that Jesus Christ rose from the dead for your justification. Now, it's well said that the resurrection is the proof of purchase. It's the proof of redemption. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verses 23, 24, and 25. Romans chapter 4 is that great passage about justification by faith. And let, me just, let me just pause and say this because where else are we going, right? <laughs> we got nothing else to do today, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression, he says spiritual depression begins when you do not understand justification by faith. It, it starts right there. He says you have to have your feet down on the solid ground of justification by faith. My friends, if you have put your faith in Christ as your Savior, if you've called upon Him to save you, you are justified before God. That means you have been declared legally innocent before God for all time. It's a permanent declaration. Justified. And my friends, if you are justified, if God has forgiven you all of your sins, all of your problems are a lot smaller than you realize. Because that's how big salvation is. But we forget that. That's what Romans 4 is about. If you're here today and you don't think that you're justified by faith, if you're wrestling with it, read Romans 3, chapter 3 and chapter 4. Make wallow in it. Get down in it. And get snuggle up in it. Justification by faith. But here's what makes it possible. Look at the last few, two verses. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Christ is a proof. It's an evidence that Christ paid the full price for sin. Christ was made sin on the cross. 
He was punished on the cross by God's divine justice. And there he died. And they took Jesus' lifeless corpse to the grave, his body to the grave, his soul to Sheol. And Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins in both his body, with his blood, and with his soul. All offered up for sinners. But on the third day, just as Jesus had prophesied, he rose from the dead. Listen to this reading now. Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, into this favor in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, for while we were still weak, at the right time, who did Christ die for? The ungodly. The authorized version says, the wicked. For scarcely, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You could find, some of you, if you saw one of my kids or one of these small children in the parking lot who is in danger, how many of you would give up your life to save a kid? Go ahead, put up your hand. You know you would. How many of you men would give up your life to save the life of your wife or a woman, even in a store? Somebody whips out their hog leg and starts shooting at the place? I would not be surprised if a lot of you guys wouldn't jump on him and twist his head off and spit down his neck. And you wouldn't care what kind of person they were that you were saving. You will find people who will die for good people. But Jesus Christ had not come in the world to die for good people. He came in the world to die for people like me and people like you. People who possess no righteousness. People who are ungodly. Now you're never going to be saved unless you see yourself as ungodly. This is, this is important. You're never going to see yourself as until you understand you have no righteousness of your own. The only righteousness that will save you is an alien righteousness. Something you get from God. Christ died for the ungodly. For though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Christ has done. He has come to die for sinners. He's come to save those who cannot save themselves. He's come to the filthy and defiled. He's come to wash them and make them clean. And Christ can make you clean if if you'll believe on him. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. All who believe in his resurrection can be justified, can be declared innocent forever, can be saved. This, uh, This event is so important. The resurrection of Christ that we celebrate every single Sunday And just on this particular Sunday, we're celebrating the incarnation and the resurrection. 
today we get to celebrate both. In my notes, I've written down here to ask you to say hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God because Jesus came and died and rose again. Because of his work, we can have real, lasting joy. Joy that comes from the presence and possession that we can have God as our Father, that we can have atonement, the appeasement of wrath through Jesus Christ. Now, here's my questions to you, all right? I want to ask you if you have peace with God. I don't mean, I'm not trying to say, do you have the peace of God? That's a different thing. Do you have peace with God? Because this world is, I just finished reading Revelation this week. This world is, is speeding towards the final day. And there's going to be a judgment day. And God's going to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus Christ will be sitting upon that great white throne. And all of mankind who's ever lived will be gathered before him. And the only ones who have peace with him in that day will be those who have believed on him while they were alive on the earth. Do you have peace with God? If you do have peace with God, that's, that's, that's a pretty good thing because that's the only thing you can possess that you can never lose. It's the only thing you can possess that you can never lose. Now, I've been married for 25 years. Well, actually, next week I'll be married 25 years to Valerie. I've, I've had her in my life for a quarter of a century. And what a precious thing she is to me. Yesterday, last night, I was sitting on the couch doing my normal man stuff, which is nothing. <laughs> and she was bustling about the house. All of a sudden, she disappears into our bedroom and comes out with gift after gift after gift, stuffing them under the tree. And I know, I know some are for me, which is great. And then we're going to go home today. She's, she's, she, I, I, she's already been to Walmart. She's bought the matching tablecloth, the tablecloth that goes with the plates and the napkins and the cups. Because we, we get out the finest paper plates money can buy <laughs> on Christmas Day. It's all going to match. It's all going to be just nice laid out there. She's going to cook in the refrigerator right now, in the refrigerator right now. There is this cranberry jello stuff in there. It's magnificent. There's a ham in there waiting. There's going to be green bean casserole, which is a 20th century innovation, believe it or not. She bought some Coke. We don't, we don't really drink we, Cokes. You know, down south, everything's a Coke, right? We, have, we don't drink Cokes that often. But there's Cokes in the fridge. I mean, it's going to be, and she's done all those things. What have I done? Nothing. But she is so valuable to me. I love her so deeply. She's so important to me. She's more important to me than I realize. She's more important to the, the kids than they can realize. But I could lose her at any moment. I could lose her at any moment. You don't, you don't know. I love our five children. I could lose any of them at any moment. 
My mother and my dad are right now, I think, driving to Kansas to see my brother. I could lose my parents at any moment. My brother, whom I love so deeply, Joel, I could lose him. I could lose my health just in a moment. I've had so many, who knows how close I've come to death and how many times I've come that close. But I could lose my life. I could lose my health. I live in fear of losing my hair. <laughs> my, my back's been hurting a lot lately, and Valerie, she told me, she said, why don't you give up basketball? And this morning, I, I thought she's like, you know, like Job's wife. That's what it sounded like to me. Like she was saying, curse God and die. That's what it felt like. <laughs> give up basketball, you know. No, we cannot do that. But, you know, the day's going to come when I can't go up and down the court. The day's going to come when I can't throw a fishing line. All the joys. Ecclesiastes says the evil days are going to come when you will say, I have no pleasure in those days. Everything you got, you can lose. Everything you got, you can lose. Everything you think you've got secured and nailed down, you can lose. But you cannot lose peace with God. You cannot lose peace. Christ is your greatest treasure. The greatest thing you possess is Jesus. And he came into the world and died and rose again so he could give himself to you. So he could give himself to you to be your Savior. To be your eternal lover and friend. And on this day of gift-giving, why don't you receive the gift of Christ? Why don't you, why don't you take it? Why, why won't you receive it? Why won't you receive him? Why won't you have him? He's orchestrated all things for this moment so you could be reminded that he is yours or so that you can be told once again that he can be yours. Receive him. Receive Christ as your Savior. And with him comes all the benefits. Everlasting life. Entrance into the kingdom. A place in the millennial reign. A new body. Heaven as your eternal home. God as your Father. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Receive Christ and you'll get more than you can imagine. More than you can imagine. Now let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would bless these words to our hearts. I pray that Oh, Lord, I pray everybody here who has not received you will receive you now. That they would cry out to you from a heart of faith. Just a heart of need. Jesus, I need you. I pray that they would do it. In Christ's holy name, amen.